Greetings and welcome to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keys Talk. This is the show where we talk about the unknown knowns, the fringes of science and culture, and the borderlands between truth and possibility. My guest today is Jonathan Schooler, a professor of psychological and brain science at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here. I should mention that I know of your work through a past guest on the podcast version of the show. And just a reminder that you can get every episode of the radio show at mattasher.com. That past guest was Tam Hunt, and the subject of our conversation was panpsychism. If you have no idea what that is, hang on, we'll get to it soon. But I want to begin with the Meta Lab, where you are the principal investigator. What is the Meta Lab? Um, the, mem- the Meta Lab stands for Memory, Emotion, Thought, and Awareness, and so it sort of captures the breadth of topics that we cover, uh, that we research. But it also uh, alludes to the fact that a lot of the work that we do is meta in nature. So we study uh, meta-consciousness or meta-awareness, um, meta-science, meta-perspectives. Uh, and so we really try to take a big-picture outlook on a lot of different topics and, and look at the way in which the very process we're examining reflects on itself. So how does consciousness reflect on itself? How does science reflect on itself? And so on. So there's a, a wide variety of topics that you deal with. And I should note, you may be the most prolific uh, researcher that I've spoken to with, I think, uh, counted over 300 articles in the last decade alone. Is that uh, in part due to being part of the meta lab? For sure, it, uh, the Meta Lab has been a really flourishing loca- location uh, to uh, base my research, but I also uh, have a penchant for collaboration, uh, and so I wouldn't have so many publications if it weren't for all my many really talented collaborators. In, indeed. I think that's a, a great way to go in general, and I'm sure it's good in terms of exposure to a wide variety of ideas from different disciplines. Yeah, exactly. I, 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 I really feel that there, uh, it's important to have some sort of specialty, but that all too often uh, in scholarship, people just anchor themselves in, in one location uh, and, and fail to really adequately uh, engage in, in cross-fertilization. And I find that some of my most exciting projects and uh, interesting topics come by uh, cross-fertilization of, over domains with things like philosophy and uh, neuroscience and social psychology, clinical psychology. So just really drawing from various different areas. Well, I expect we'll get into a variety of those areas, but I do want to start with that one I teased, panpsychism. Um, And it, it is essentially the belief that consciousness or experiential experience, uh, exists at all levels, is it not? Yeah. Uh, Before we dive into that, I want to just sort of give my caveat, which is sort of the perspective that I take on many of these uh, controversial issues, which is something I call uh, entertaining without endorsing. Uh, And I really believe that it's very important that we uh, seriously consider alternative perspectives and uh, recognize that uh, you can go deep on a perspective without having to necessarily uh, endorse it uh, 100%. So I, I differ a little bit from my 
colleague, Tam Hunt, who is just a full-on panpsychist, and I'm very open to panpsychism, but I also see uh, considered possible some sort of emergentism. That is that it's possible that consciousness might arise um, at some late, later level of uh, complexity and not make it sway all the way down. But yes, panpsychism is essentially the idea that there is some essence of consciousness, there is something it is like to be a very, very low-level things, and that those low-level things, maybe they're strings or some very, very basic thing, then somehow bind together into larger consciousnesses, which, and, and this is a, an idea that Tam Hunt and also Justin Riddle and I have been working on, those also may bind into yet higher consciousnesses, which may bind into higher consciousnesses. And you have sort of this pattern of what um, we call nested observer windows. So you sort of have windows within windows within windows. And I'd be happy to flesh that out. Yeah, I do want to go into that some more, just to back up to what you'd said about entertaining without endorsing. That might mm-hmm. as well be the theme of this uh, of this show. Uh, to a large extent, we're going to talk about a wide variety of topics and uh, entertaining things without necessarily saying that this is the truth. These are these are possibilities, and I think it's important to investigate them. Uh, as much as we can. One of the things that I like about the panpsychism hypothesis, and this doesn't mean that it's true, but I, I find it um, a, a point in its favor, certainly, is that it doesn't require any kind of magical thinking, in that if it's a very strange thing to imagine that an atom might be having some kind of an experience or have some kind of a consciousness, but at the same time, if you don't believe that something like that extends down to the lowest level, then you have to come up with, and I think this was maybe even used as an example in one of the articles of yours I read, that some kind of, you know, then a miracle occurs. So, you know, you with the panpsychist vision, I guess you'd say, you're not having one particular moment where you go from no experience, no consciousness to consciousness. Instead, you have it at some minuscule amount in some, you know, in some rudimentary way, and then everything is built up from there. Is, is that an accurate way to put it? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. The panpsychism essentially takes uh, consciousness as a fundamental aspect of uh, reality that is permeated it at all different levels. And so because it takes consciousness as a, uh, a given, you don't have to explain why at this particular level of complexity or life or whatever, all of a sudden consciousness emerges. Now, I will also say that there, there is a little bit of a miracle even still. How is it that consciousness exists at that very lowest level you still have a miracle. See, the, the kind of the fact of the matter is you got to throw a miracle in there somewhere. Um, but that's really, I find, very ex- extraordinary and cool. We know, like people are looking for sort of some sort of remarkable thing in existence to be able to go, wow, that's just so unfathomable. But the existence of subjective experience is the greatest miracle of all. And it is absolutely unquestionable. It is absolutely self-evident at least from my perspective, that I'm having subjective experience that somehow physical reality is it creates or is associated with subjective experience. And that is just really uh, an awe-inspiring miracle. And um, it's happened somewhere, and wherever it happens, it's 
quite remarkable. My own feeling is that that's something that's probably not accessible to us as as something that we'll ever be able to find out. Though one of the the ideas that I like entertaining the most is the uh, simulation hypothesis. But that, of course, only kind of kicks the can down the road or one level up uh, in terms of where the miracle has occurred. I, I, I love the simulation hypothesis for um, a, a host of reasons. And again, uh, my, my view on the simulation hypothesis is a one of, of entertaining, but essentially the simulation hypothesis uh, is the idea that somehow we are uh, all uh, in a simulation in the way that it was articulated by Nick Bostrom. We're in a simulation that was created by our ancestors so that um, our ancestors continue to uh, evolve and become more and more ingenious in the kind of simulations that they were able to produce. And eventually they'd be able to uh, uh, create a simulation of themselves and so we could very well be in the simulation of our ancestors. I also think it's interesting to think about the possibility. Well, currently, when people talk about uh, the Big Bang, uh, there's this notion of uh, the multiverse, that, that this is just one Big Bang, and that the Big Bang, uh, that basically Big Banging has been going on for an infinity. And we know that Big Bangs can lead to consciousness, because it did this one time. And if Big Banging has been going on for infinity, that means that there's been an infinity of big bangs, an infinity of opportunities for consciousness to arise, which gives it a lot of opportunities to come up with whatever it can uh, to create its most uh, re remarkable and sustained quality. So we could well be in uh, a uh, simulation, not necessarily by our ancestors, but by the uh, some consciousness that arose in some uh, uh, big bang uh, and uh, perhaps uh, it's trying to create the most remarkable set of uh, experiences for itself that it possibly can. And uh, Alan Watts uh, speculates about the idea that we're all sort of uh, uh, God playing hide and seek with him, him or herself. Uh, and this idea can be sort of returned to the simulation where consciousness may have, through infinite opportunities of uh, arising, uh, figured out a way to create uh, simulations to uh, uh, expand and entertain itself. I am talking with Jonathan Schooler on uh, from UCSB on Keys Talk. And while we're on the subject of the simulation hypothesis, I might as well throw out per perhaps either the darkest or the most intricate version of that that I like to entertain, which is that effectively our existence is to be something like dice in a Monte Carlo simulation in order to solve problems for the universe above. In short, what we're doing here is trying to figure out a way to survive as a species in order to help the, uh, the universe above us do exactly that. Because if you think about the direction in which we go with our own simulations and you know, with our own computer work, eventually we're, we're creating simulations, we're creating these universes, and we're doing that ultimately to solve problems that can't be solved with, you know, with a math equation. These are problems that require randomness to solve, so I, I like to ponder the possibility that we are that we are in in some simulation to to solve some problem for the universe above. Yeah, I two two thoughts on that. The first thing is that sometimes people uh, find it existentially threatening to imagine 
that we're in a simulation that somehow it 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 takes away from the the meaning of of existence if you think you're somehow it doesn't sound very good and uh, I, I i quite like um well two points on that the first is that uh, everything remains the same there's still suffering there's still pleasure there's still joy there's still meaning all the different things that we experience in this existence are exactly the same regardless of their uh, of their of their underpinnings so it, it doesn't in any way i think detract from the the meaning that we all extract from this current existence but i do think it's possible if we are in a simulation that somehow we are serving some purpose beyond what we uh what we recognize that we may be somehow uh facilitating the uh, understanding of some uh additional level and uh Maybe that level is facilitating the understanding of yet another. I mean, we could be a simulation within a simulation within a simulation. Uh, so I always I always want to caution against sort of false peaks and thinking that ah, there we phone, you know the next level up is the final level and so on. If, if we were in a simulation, but um, it, it yeah, could be turtles great. all the way up for all we know. It could be turtles all the way up. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I do have to say that I tend to find to like. Personally, I like to think that it's the infinity of all the way up is uh, is a is challenging, and so th- to me, it does feel quite plausible that there is sort of a the buck stops here uh, level. But that level may never you you never know it may never know when when it's there. Uh, so you, you always have to maintain that uh, that humility. But yeah, I think the idea that somehow we are uh, uh, creating additional knowledge. Uh, for uh, uh, for some next level up is very useful. I also think it's possible that where that our hedonic pleasure that that our, that the that we're extracting joy and 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 feeling and that and that that may be part of our responsibility uh, as well. That if you just look at the quality of this simul, if we are in a simulation, the quality of the world that we find ourselves in, there's so much joy and pleasure and uh, experiences to be had. And so it, that may be part of our sort of responsibility is to make the most of, of uh, all these uh, uh, amazing opportunities that befall us. Interesting. That's a, a fairly lovely uh, way to uh, imagine where we're at. I, uh, the, the darker vision of that that idea that we are a simulation to solve problems is that the problem that we're trying to solve is you know, how to have a civilization that doesn't blow itself up one way or another. And the reason that we're here to solve that is because the universe above hasn't. And so uh, we're iterating through all the, you know, we're one of many, uh, iterating through how to, you know, how to get as far as possible before things go awry. Uh, But I want to, unless you had any other thoughts, I was going to shift a little bit on consciousness there. Sure. Yeah, so uh, as we're talking about consciousness and, and back to, uh, to panpsychism, one of the, the interesting things that spills out of that, at least in some of the, the writing I've read about it, is the idea that we are not a single consciousness, that we, are, we contain multitudes. Uh, this is a, a discussion I had 
um, with Peter Gottfried Smith when we were talking actually about his book, which discusses the intelligence of octopus and you know how how that might look and the ways I, I pointed out that in some ways our own consciousness is is fragmented. I know you've done some work on that in terms of the different spheres of the brain and the ways in which to you know to bring back in the theme of the podcast. You can have part of your brain that knows something, but at the same time, you don't know it. Yeah, this is a very rich uh, topic. And let me first uh, tie this in with um, with panpsychism uh, and that construct that I mentioned before of nested observer windows, which, by the way, creates the abbreviation nows. Uh, and I think that that's uh, quite uh, apt because basically... The, the metaphor is if you've ever seen these uh, pictures where every pixel is itself a picture, uh, it's, a, it's a really great metaphor. And you can imagine that every picture that's itself a pixel is itself constituted of pictures that are themselves pictures and themselves constituted of pictures within. So you have pictures within pictures within pictures, each picture simultaneously being a window unto itself and a pixel for the next level up. And, and that model, I think, is a really um, uh, poignant way of capturing this idea of nested consciousnesses, because each window could itself be its own independent consciousness, and yet also serve as uh, a pixel in the window of the next level up. And I also imagine, this is consistent with the, the model that Tam Hunt discussed, that the, the way in which these pixels are sort of representing their information is in terms of rhythm. So you have very fast uh, sets of patterns of, of vibrations that are going in a particular level of synchrony that constitute the very low levels. And then those are then synchronizing into higher levels and synchronizing to higher levels into higher levels. So you have nested windows, but you could also imagine them as nested with rhythms or, or, or waves. And I think that this, uh, this configuration provides a model of imagining how you can have simultaneously a consciousness at a lower level, which is then contributing to a larger level consciousness, which is then contributing to yet a larger level consciousness. Now, with respect to our own consciousnesses, uh, I do think it's very possible that, that our conscious experience is a, uh, a window that's looking out on a whole set of uh, lower windows. And it may be that our different brain networks, there's something known as the default mode network, which is uh, processing sort of internal thought and uh, mind wandering. And then you have uh, a, uh, a salience network and an executive network that's sort of doing problem solving. And it's possible that each one of these separate uh, networks is having its own separate conscious experience and that we're uh, sort of at the, what we call our, ourselves as us are existing at sort of a higher level window but then sometimes we pop back even further and take stock of what's going on in our window and the example of this that i uh, quite like is the example of mind wandering while reading we all have the experience of reading and our eyes are moving across the page and suddenly we realize that our mind has completely wandered that we have no idea what we've been reading and we have to figure out like where it was that we uh, last lost track of our of our understanding. And the interesting question is, why do we do that? Why do we continue to read when we have uh, completely lost the train of the material? And the answer is 
I think we've lost track of what's going on in our own minds. We haven't noticed that we are no longer thinking, we're no longer reading, we're thinking about something else. And so what I call meta-awareness or meta-consciousness is that moment where you finally go, oh my God, I've done it again. I, I was mind wandering, where was I? And this happens in other situations as well. It can happen quite possibly a listener may have mind wandered as I was just saying that quite possibly a number of them have while you're driving you drive right past the exit or you head off in the in the wrong direction this mind wandering without meta-awareness is is ubiquitous well we are gonna have to wander off to a break here on keys talk 1025 i'm talking with jonathan schooler and we will be back with you shortly Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keys Talk. I'm talking with Jonathan Schooler at uh, UCSB, a principal investigator at the Meta Lab, and we are talking about consciousness, human and otherwise, and the ways in which perhaps human beings contain multitudes, as do certain other animals. One of the discussions related to that that I had was about octopus and the way that each arm has its little bit of consciousness, but then at the same time, there may be something like a unitary executive at the top. And where we left off was on mind wandering. And I I think that that is definitely part of the experience of being a human being is that our mind wanders as to, you know, why we don't stop reading when our mind wanders. You know, it's wandering, right? Uh, so we can get in certainly into certain unconscious modes. One of the ways in which I do think we're actually quite a bit like an octopus in terms of having these other tentacles that are just sort of doing their own thing in part I think that has to do with our stomach, which which has a lot of its own kind of brain-like substance. And also, we do things like the example I used was we have, we have tongues, and if you've ever had some kind of cut in your mouth or canker sore or whatever, you might find that your, your tongue is examining that, even though it's not in your best interest to keep you know, uh, tapping it or whatever it is, and your brain can intercede and say, hey, I know that's there, stop doing it, but your tongue will wander right back over to that same spot as as soon as your, you know, your brain shifts focus to something else. What, what does that tell you about our own kind of mix of consciousnesses? Yeah, those are some lovely uh, examples. And just to throw in an, uh, another one that I think is uh, a really compelling one is when you're driving, you know, you can be, say, listening to a podcast and really having your attention there, but your your hand is still steering the wheel, you're still uh, braking and, and controlling the uh, accelerator. And it seems as if this whole sort of system is on autopilot uh, and, and is being, in a certain sense, quite uh, attentive, uh, but it nevertheless is not where your primary consciousness is. So it really does feel as if we've got these sort of multiplicities of, uh, of consciousnesses going on simultaneously. Uh, you know, another example is where you scratch an itch and you're, uh, you know, you've got the one system which is doing this whole thing and another part of you which has made a complete goal that the last thing you wanna do is be scratching that anymore. So I think that it's really very plausible that we have these multiple different systems that are all having their separate consciousnesses. And we 
uh, integrate them to a greater or lesser degree. There's, of course, fascinating research on uh, when people cut the corpus callosum or when surgeons cut the corpus callosum in order to treat epilepsy, a severe epilepsy. This was used to be more common than it is now, so that the two hemispheres are no longer communicating with each other. And there seems to be evidence that the two hemispheres are able to sustain independent consciousnesses where uh, one will be able to report what is being seen and the other won't be able to report but can point to it. And even some cases where the two hands are actually working against each other. So one hand will build something up and the other hand will actually try to knock it down. Just another of, of the many examples in which consciousness seems to be divided in our own experience. The uh, original name for the show is The Filter. You'll still see that if you go to mattasher.com. And the reason I called it The Filter is because I think of that as our our active consciousness that's filtering reality for us. When we look out at the world, we don't tend to see the world exactly as it is. We tend to see it in terms of the concepts that we've built up. We walk down the street and we go car or streetlight or whatever it is. We are putting our experience into the categories and that, that filters how we perceive the world. One of the interesting things, and I think you've done a, a, a fair amount of research on this, is to some extent what, how our brains can kind of get in our own way. And it, it's interesting how much peak performance often involves almost turning off a part of your brain, turning off one of those filters. And I don't know if it would be running on autopilot exactly, but letting your own expert systems that you've developed do their own thing without your some level of your consciousness getting in the way. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. that's I very much agree with that. There's a, a concept uh, known as flow, uh, originally coined by uh, Mike Chiksamahai, who's now at Claremont College. And here the idea is that when you are engaged in a task, which is pushing you to the maximum of your capacity, but still within your capacity, uh, you get into this state of sort of supreme concentration. Uh, and all of us uh, have had this experience at one time or another. Uh, most of us wish we had it more often. I know I do. Uh, and it's a really, it's a wonderful, wonderful state. You're playing tennis and you're just, you're hitting the ball, you're typing, you're just really in, in, uh, in the flow, but maybe even in a conversation, lots of different situations can flow can arise. But one of the key things that's very interesting about flow is that when you think to yourself, oh, this is great, I'm in flow, oftentimes that knocks you out. So the experience of meta-awareness, taking stock of the fact that you're in flow can actually be quite problematic in that situation. So meta-awareness can be very useful if you're, say, mind-wandering, but it can be quite problematic if you're in a flow state. You mentioned... I did have one other... Go ahead. No. One other thing I wanted to mention about the filter is a phenomenon that I've uh, been interested in for a very long time, uh, something that I uh, originally discovered with my uh, ex-wife, Tanya Engstler-Schooler, some 30-odd years ago, called verbal overshadowing. And uh, essentially, the idea here is that if you experience a nonverbal stimulus, such as a face or a taste or a color, when you try to translate that experience into words, you'd think that that would be very helpful, that that would just sort of crystallize the experience. And in some cases it does, 
But in other cases, it can actually interfere with your representation. So when people describe the appearance of a previously seen face, it can actually interfere with their later ability to recognize it. If they describe the taste of a wine, it can actually interfere with their later ability to recognize that wine. So this is sort of an example of how language itself can serve as a filter, which can uh, interfere with some of our intuitive nonverbal experiences. Well, language is an entropy-reducing filter for sure, I guess would be one way to put it, in the sense that it always loses information. Um, even even audio, which is certainly higher entropy or information content than the written word, still it loses something. It's reducing a thought or an experience to you know to to what you are listening to right now. Uh, you you mentioned uh, tennis there and the experience of it. I, I don't think it's coincidental that perhaps one of the greatest works about the experience, the mental aspect of a game, as I think it's called the mental game of tennis, um, because tennis is so much a game about angles and probabilities and very quick calculations that you have to make, a succession of them. And I, I think that this is related to the filter in that, that one of the hardest things to do is to turn that off, to turn off that analysis that you're doing. Let your hours and thousands and thousands of hours of practice dominate and just be in that moment doing it. And it's very easy to get sidelined by, you know, by being upset with yourself or whatever else it is or overthinking things uh, when you're already trained enough. I also think that there's something in particular about our brain's inherent ability to do math of one kind or another that the filter, and, and this definitely is related to the aspects of tennis that are, um, are, that are about the, the geometry of what's going on, that, that some people perhaps have brain injuries that turn that off, that kind of like an autistic savant situation where the filter that that gets in the way of you and your brain's ability to do math and I know this is kind of a, a long rambling question but you know we do have animals that are able to do fairly sophisticated math and I sometimes speculate that what's happened with us is that we do have that somewhere in our brain that possibility but this social filter that's been overlaid on top of it or this continual you know, con conceptualization of things trips us up in terms of our ability to do those, that kind of native processing. Yeah, you really have to be uh, careful what you wish for. There was a uh, Russian researcher, uh, Luria, who, who studied a patient who was one of these uh, savants and uh, was able to uh, remember just an incredible amount of information and and do calculations and things like that. But the challenge is that this patient was very, very challenged in terms of abstraction because everything was so concrete. All the different details were uh, being represented. They couldn't pull them together and see what the generalized concept was. So part of the, the talent of human beings is this ability to step back, to not uh, confuse the the uh, trees for the for the forest. Yes, perhaps by stepping back, you see fewer of the trees, but you're able to recognize the forest. And so this capacity for abstraction 
is a really, really critical one. And this is one that oftentimes the savants who have this sort of low level detailed capacity uh, lose. I, I think that that's probably right. And that the, you know, this filter that we've developed has to be adaptive. Otherwise, we wouldn't be the creatures that dominate the earth that we are, right? So there is certainly something gained in terms of our our, our filter on reality and our ability to think in terms of abstractions and everything that spills out of that, including um, our ability to predict the future, right? Yeah, absolutely. This is another one of humankind's uh, greatest achievements is we're not limited to the present. We're able to project ourselves into the future and, and imagine different possible futures. We're able to engage in mental time travel in the past and explore episodes uh, that we've uh, had in the past. We're able to produce counterfactuals and imagine what would have happened had we done uh, something else instead of what we actually did. And while it certainly is uh, possible, and, and I, I personally think likely that animals do this to some degree, we are virtuosos at this type of mental time travel. And I think it's really critical to our capacity for success and and for all the different ways in which we've been able to adapt to our environments and and really turn our environments into things that are serving our purposes. It is very interesting to me how little time we spend in the present versus thinking about the past or the future or playing out possible futures. Yeah. Well, this is, of course, brings brings up the topic of, of mindfulness. And while it is certainly the case that there is great value to this kind of mental time travel. There's also a cost. If you're always uh, imagining you know, how things could be better or always reviewing how the past could have worked out differently, you're, you're not really fully present in what's going on in the moment, not able to uh, extract all the quality of experience that may be going on. And you also may miss important things. So uh, there's, there's, there's value to mental time travel, but there's also great value to uh, finding oneself in the present. And I actually think that uh, this is a it's, it's an interesting balancing act that uh, human beings need to find, uh, finding sort of the middle way between uh, mind-wandering reflection and really being present to what's happening now. For sure, for sure. When we pick back up, I want to ask you about something that's probably perhaps uh, completely unrelated to that, the the decline in the effectiveness as shown in research. I know it's a bit of a, a jag, but it, it's particularly on my, uh, on my mind right now. So let's uh, pick that back up. You are listening to Keys Talk 1025. I'm talking with Jonathan Schooler. We are talking with Jonathan Schooler, professor of psychological and brain science at the University of California, Santa Barbara, on Keys Talk 1025. This is the Matt Asher radio show. And we are talking about research generally for the moment and a curious phenomena in terms of um, in terms of findings. I think a lot of people know about the replication crisis. That is 
the uh, thing that's happening, um, in particular in the psychological sciences, but also having to do with the economic results as well, where findings that seem very strong don't seem to replicate. There's a, a cousin of that where you have studies that uh, that just that do replicate, but they just seem to get less strong in terms of the effect size over time. Uh, as, as someone um, with a background in stats, I have my own thoughts on that, but I want to begin with your own research into that and what's your take on that? And does it tell us anything about the nature of our universe itself? So the decline effect is definitely a domain in which I think the entertaining without endorsing perspective is uh, is especially important. The first thing to note is that there have been many demonstrations of situations in which effects are initially reported and then subsequently they're found but at a smaller level than the original finding. Uh, and that is the essence of the idea of the decline effect. And there are a number of very sort of straightforward statistical explanations for the decline effect. For example, uh, if somebody finds an effect and if they aren't super highly powered, then they need to have a little bit of good luck as well as the effect in order to actually get it to work in the first place. And routinely studies are underpowered. That is, they don't have as many participants as would be ideal. So this may mean that historically, a lot of effects were missed because they weren't adequately powered and there was bad luck. And the ones that were found involved both a combination of there being an effect there and then also getting lucky so that it, it was significant with the number of participants that they ran. When additional people run the study, they are going to have just on average, average luck. And so the there's going to be an exaggeration where the initial studies uh, are going to have bigger effect sizes than uh, later ones. Relatedly is just the notion of uh, something called regression to the mean, where uh, if you have a really strong outlier uh, effect, the next time it's just on average going to be uh, smaller. And then there are a number of other sort of very Bef standard before, things. Before uh, you, you talk about those, I want to give an example of that for the audience that may not be familiar sure. with that phenomenon. One of the fun anecdotes is of a, a coach who uh, has stopped giving positive feedback because he has noticed that every time he compliments a player on a really good play, the next one is bad, um, and, and vice versa. The, the joke being there that if you're pointing out a particularly uh, good play, one that is extraordinary, then by, de by definition as something extraordinary, the next one is uh, almost certainly not going to be as good. So what he's not noticing there is that when he compliments something great, uh, that's something exceptional, and the next thing is almost certainly not going to be as exceptional. And, and actually, just uh, somewhat related to that, one of the past guests on the filter was Andrew Gelman, the statistician, and related to the kind of the, to explain maybe a little bit of the, the uh, size of the study, if you're running a very small study, then if you have an effect that's significant, 
that's going to have to be a big effect. This is just an artifact of the way that the math works. But what it means is that if you run a small study or a study on a small number of people and that study shows an effect, that's going to have to be a big effect. Uh, and, and so you get some selection bias there. Precisely. Yeah, those are you flushed that out uh, very nicely. Some other mechanisms, sort of standard mechanisms that could explain the uh, decline effect are that the originating researcher has various different elements in their protocol, and they may not know every single thing when they write it up that was important to include. There may be some secret sauce that even they don't realize was part of the thing, so that when other people do it, they're doing most everything right, but they're leaving out some critical details. And it's possible that even the researcher themselves doesn't realize that, say, the particular experimenter they were using was doing this as opposed to that, and that that was contributing to the, the value of the real effect. And when they do it again, the effect gets smaller. And there are a number of these kinds of uh, very uh, straightforward kinds of uh, explanations that, that could, and I think I would have to say, in fairness, in all likelihood, are the, um, the primary reason for the decline effect. That said, I have entertained the possibility that there could be something more, that there, that somehow it's kind of like beginner's luck in reverse, that when you are off on an auspicious direction, that somehow by virtue of the nature of reality, perhaps the way that the simulation was programmed, uh, that, that auspicious things get a little extra juice in order to point us in the right direction. And... Uh, we actually, we did this giant uh, study in which we had multiple labs attempting to replicate each other's findings. And in the initial uh, analysis of this, the basic prediction was as if we run the exact, if we discover new things and then we uh, replicate them, that the effect shouldn't decline if we're doing absolutely everything right. And in fact, in our initial analysis, it appeared that it it, it did not decline. But we actually had a initial pilot phase. Uh, and when we include that pilot phase into this large study, we do see a decline. So the ir irony here is that we actually observed the decline effect itself decline. Uh, so that again, leaves me in this sort of place of it should, there's the decline effect itself shouldn't have declined. Uh, there are p definitely possible explanations for that, but I still, entertain the possibility that there may be some kind of beginner's luck that plays itself out in science that helps that's just at a point that when a good study is done with a promising direction you get the effect with uh, fewer participants than you would you will need to otherwise i uh, did discovered verbal overshadowing and in my initial studies on that we got these massive effects uh, on the effect of describing faces Verbal overshadowing has replicated. There's been some very big multi-international replication studies, but the effect sizes are nowhere near the size that I observed when I first did it. So it's possible that there could be uh, some kind of beginner's luck built into the uh, fabric of uh, the cosmos. I know this is a hugely controversial uh, claim, and I'm... I think it's uh, one that is less likely than all the more straightforward ones that I mentioned, but I still think it's uh, deserving of uh, entertaining. 
One of the most interesting effect size changes over time seems to be related to the placebo effect. Is that right? Yeah, there's been some really uh, uh, striking studies that essentially the difference between the um, experimental conditions, say Prozac and the placebo, tends to get have tended to get smaller over time. Now, it, it really sort of depends how you uh, define these effects because uh, you can think of them as a decline in the impact of Prozac or possibly as an incline in the effect of the uh, placebo. But, but for sure, there have been a lot of studies that have found the added value of the medication over the placebo gets smaller over, uh, over time. I guess one, I don't know if this is the same as your own hypothesis relating to uh, beginner's luck, and I should be careful there. I'm not saying that it's a hypothesis you're endorsing, but just describing. Um, would entertaining. Be, entertaining. Uh, it would be that, uh, I don't know, that there's some kind of Jungian unconscious plane working at its way out uh, among different people in some way that we just don't understand. Yeah, I have um, I have coined the term uh, for better or for worse a phrase uh, cosmic habituation. Uh, so in in the same way that an individual uh, can uh, experience sort of habituation over time, it's possible that there may be some sort of collective habituation that takes place. Again, I recognize this is a uh, incredibly contentious and uh, provocative uh, suggestion, but. Um, it's really important to emphasize there's so much we don't understand about existence that it's really important to ground ourselves in humility and be really cautious about just dismissing ideas out of hand. Now, at the same time, I think it's important to be open-minded, but not so open-minded that our brain falls out. So we want to uh, entertain these things, but not just go, oh, this is true and that's true and just believe everything we hear. I think it's possible to maintain simultaneously uh, serious consideration of radical conjectures while still scrutinizing them rigorously and, and thinking about how you might test it and, and all the reasons why they might be wrong. To bring this back to the idea of consciousness, I think that for sure we need to be aware of how little we understand that phenomenon, in particular how how little we understand it in terms of other creatures. We we barely uh, understand it in terms of ourselves. But then to try to put yourself into the space of some other kind of conscious being is is truly difficult. And there's so much about that that we don't know and that might have spillover effects. I'm hoping to have on at some point a guest to talk about the ways in which plants communicate, not just through the roots that I think people are, might already know uh, in a general way, but also with actual sounds. There's researchers studying that. So there are definitely things happening in our universe on a plane that we uh, that we don't grasp and that we are that certain researchers are just beginning to tune into now. Absolutely. I, I think that the mystery of consciousness is one of the things that most grounds me in humility and in wanting to really entertain alternative perspectives. I will say that 
consciousness is one of these really interesting things because it's simultaneously the thing that we know most intimately. It's it, arguably it's the thing we know best. You have an experience and you know it more, better than you know anything else. And at the same time, we know at least uh, objectively from a scientific perspective. And one more point in terms of animals is that psychologists have for a long time been very, very concerned about anthropomorphism, that is uh, to projecting uh, our experience onto other creatures and, and assuming that because we experience things in a particular way, when we behave in a particular way, that they're experiencing the same thing. But I also think we need to also be careful about anthropocentrism, the possibility that we think that we are unique in our experiences. And I think it's quite possible that some very fundamental aspects of our own experience may have very similar analogs going down, particularly, I think, emotions. I think that it's very likely that the experience of emotions that uh, animals experience, and perhaps even plants, are more similar to our own experience than we might appreciate. It's certainly something that we should consider very seriously. Um, we're running out of time in the radio. Are you able to stick with me on the podcast for a little bit more? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, thank you very much. So we will pick this up on the podcast, but uh, that'll be all here for the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keys Talk. Thanks for joining us. I need to mention that we have a live show coming up on August 19th at Key West Theater. If you are in the area, really, if you are anywhere where you can get to Key West, and I know that isn't everywhere in the world right now, but it's a lot of places, by all means, come on down. Our very first guest wrote a book about people fascinating book, and we are going to have a fascinating conversation about it in front of a live audience, and we will follow that up with a Q&A session. Picking back up here, our discussion, um, I want to change topics again here. You've done some recent research into something called or a phenomenon of meta-dehumanization. Uh, could you talk about what that is? Sure. So um, dehumanization is the um, terrible, terrible thing that human beings do where they think of other human beings not as humans but as, as animals. And uh, this is something that has happened historically. The Nazis referred to Jews as, as vermin. And uh, you, you see this playing itself out uh, time and time again throughout history. And we find even now that when you give people, there's this scale where it has that sort of classic um, image of uh, sort of the evolution of man, where you have the, you know, sort of it goes from ape to sort of caveman, and then finally to a human being. Fully upright uh, human being. Fully upright human being. Thank you. Uh, and if you show this to people and you say, uh, people oftentimes will perceive members of other groups as being somewhere along this continuum. Where do you see this particular group or that particular group? And they, they just sort of move uh, the cursor to where along the line they imagine this other group. What you find is routinely they'll put members of another group in a, a classification not quite human. 
So this is uh, this is dehumanization, and meta dehumanization is where you learn that somebody else, some other group, has dehumanized you. So uh, if you're uh, you if you uh, you or if you learn or you have an impression, so uh, Republicans may imagine that uh, Democrats uh, think of them as less than humans, and Democrats think of Republicans perhaps as thinking of them as less than human, and so it's if I'm a Democrat, and if I think that Republicans think of me as less than human, that would be meta-dehumanization. I'm imagining that the other group is uh, perceiving me as being less than human. And the question is, what does that do to me? If I think that the other group perceives me as less than human, how do I feel about that group? And, and not surprisingly, it causes me to meta-dehumanize them and also to have um, negative beliefs about them. So you end up with something like a cycle there, though that could be, th those views might be spot on in that they are uh, uh, realistically as assessing the extent to which they are being dehumanized by the other group, or it may over understate the case, right? Yeah, actually, what we tend to find is that groups tend to exaggerate. They think that the other group is dehumanizing them more than they uh, actually are. And uh, this may then contribute to a sort of uh, false cycle of uh, meta-dehumanization where they, they think the other group is dehumanizing them more than they really are, and that then leads to further dehumanization and so on. So, so in, in part, uh, coming to realize that actually the other groups don't think as negatively about you as, uh, as you might think may actually be helpful in sort of turning a vicious cycle into a virtuous cycle. It's an interesting possibility. I'm fairly skeptical about the moment we're in in terms of whether things are going to be turning for the better or the worse, though I think that there is a possibility for the better if, uh, if the U.S. splits apart, um, which I, I see as a a possibility worth entertaining uh, to continue along those lines because at some point when you get into a cycle like that, uh, one of the a very interesting researcher on uh, marriage, uh, Jonathan Gottman, actually a, a friend of the family, uh, did a lot of research on what are the kind of four horsemen of the apocalypse in terms of uh, relationships, what are the indicators that it is doomed. And uh, I forget the, all of them, but a very strong vibe from these is that essentially you stop respecting that person as a person. You start to feel about them as if they are, I think dehuman is too strong a word, but contempt, which may be something of a, a precursor to that in the sense that it's a feeling of they're not at my level. They are, they're pitiable, they're contemptible. Right, there are a large number of emotions that you feel towards other people that are not explicitly dehumanizing in the sense of viewing them as vermin or cockroaches or whatnot, but that are certainly maybe along that spectrum. And I see a lot of evidence of those kind of emotions in play right now. Yeah, I, I think that's well. I, I agree that there's a lot of that going on. I, I, you maybe have even picked up on this. I think I'm just at heart a optimist, and I think that there's 
even though there's um, we're in a very difficult time right now, uh, things are cyclical, and I think it's I think it's possible that we could enter a, a cycle of, uh, of of greater agreement. Um, some of the things that psychology suggests are valuable for this are having people uh, getting to interact with others uh, from different perspectives. And in so doing, one realizes the humanity of those individuals, the degree to which there are shared values. And so I think uh, finding opportunities to have meaningful dialogue between people of, of different perspectives can be very helpful. And I think it's also helpful to understand, even if you disagree with the way some of the values play out, you can understand the values that drive the, uh, the disagreements. So uh, recognizing, for example, that uh, a lot of the perspectives on uh, that, uh, say, uh, helping Democrats, for example, understand that uh, the values of uh, uh, Republicans involve uh, a, a need for uh, respect for uh, authority or for uh, freedom of uh, just a strong value on freedom. And, and those, when you think about it like that, that, that sounds reasonable. And then for uh, Republicans to recognize that uh, fairness is very, very important to, uh, to Democrats and uh, compassion for those individuals uh, who are uh, less fortunate than themselves. And so if you sort of step back from the specific details and ground into the values that are, are driving some of these things, this may help people to see, to better understand how, where they're coming from, because I think oftentimes people just throw up their hands and go, I cannot imagine how they could be thinking what they're thinking. I, I think that that's probably what a lot of people are saying right now. They have a very hard time getting into the head of someone who is on the other side. We're in a very tribal moment. Um, and I think we're in a moment of where there have been, not to go too deep into the specifics, but some very kind of scorched earth moments that make it very hard to recover and that I would say definitely feed into the feeling that the other side views you as something to be wiped off the map, uh, if not literally, then at least in terms of your culture and your way of life. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's unfortunately there's there's a really is a fair bit of that um of that sentiment but again if people can understand where other people are coming from one other factor that i think is really important to really recognize both in ourselves and in others is something known as motivated reasoning and this is the very well established finding that when we hear information that is consistent with our belief set, we inspect it, we evaluate it very differently than the way that we evaluate information that is contrary to our uh, to the things we want to believe. And so what's also happening is, is that two different sides, their motivated reasoning is operating in exactly opposite ways uh, in these situations. And so recognizing the role that motivated reasoning plays can both help one to uh, understand how someone could come to such different perspectives and also to uh, sink in 
to the possibility that maybe some of the beliefs that you yourself are holding, you might want to inspect that more carefully because it's possible that you haven't really investigated with the same rigor that you would have had it been uh, something that was less tenable for you. I I certainly uh, agree with the, that in terms of the value of understanding your own motivated reasoning and why it might lead you to come to a particular conclusion that's exaggerated. Um, but at at a kind of a group dynamics level, at a more global level, I tend to think in terms of incentives, right? What are the incentives? At a personal level, I have a drive for the truth. I want to be as accurate as possible with my own filter on reality. Uh, but at the broader level, it's not clear what the forces would be that would push people to that kind of self-reflection and that kind of examining of their own um, motivated reasoning as opposed to just dismissing the other side or um, you know or doubling down on their own vision of the awfulness of the other yeah well I think that to the degree that in various different conflicts both sides recognize that the degree of polarization is is problematic uh, then once you see once the polarization itself becomes a problem that needs to be confronted then thinking about what contributes polarization and what are what do we know about things that can help to uh, reduce it becomes incentivized and that's part of why I think it's possible that the system could cycle back to a uh, more uh, or less polarized thing is that the degree of polarization could just become so dysfunctional that um, uh, that there's a, an appreciated need uh, for uh, more of a middle ground. Mm. I, I hope so. I think that the system is working for the people who, I don't want to say run the system. There's nothing conspiratorial about this in the sense that this is not about people getting together behind closed doors and agreeing things. But you have in a, a group of elites. Those elites have a level of power. They have a level of influence. And things are going really well for them right now. The particular response to the pandemic to treat it not from the medical level of how can we find a treatment, but from the level of let's shut down everybody's business. That was massively, whatever its effects in terms of public health, it was indisputably uh, beneficial to the Amazons, to the Microsofts, and indisputably harmful to the smaller players, right? So you have a system, and that system seems to be right now working very well for the people at the top, the the billionaires, the the elites, the people in government, none of them lost their jobs, for example, during that. And the polarization arguably doesn't hurt them, right? So I, I I wonder what are the what are the things that would cause like if the system is working for the people who are at the top or controlling in some way the system, then why would you know why would there be a an incentive to change unless it comes, I guess, in a grassroots kind of way. Exactly. So I, I think um, grassroots things really 
can happen and, and do happen, and history has, has seen that uh, throughout. And, and also there were some lessons that were potentially learned uh, during the pandemic about the value of uh, government uh, really uh, rising to the occasion and, and providing a level of support that it was, had not been offering to, to people lower down in the, in the hierarchy. And, and that really did happen. And many people who are suffering would be suffering much, much more if there weren't the, the response that the government uh, generated and that uh, uh, continues to be observed. And that has provided an opportunity for us to sort of get a better sense of what is the impact of uh, having a greater uh, uh, government support uh, throughout the, the system. And so it provided an opportunity for a uh, experiment. And I think a lot of people have been witnessing the, the benefits that have uh, arisen from that. And that could potentially also lead to a, uh, a, a greater change. There, right now, there's been a dramatic increase in the amount of support that's being given to families with children and the uh, level of of, of children in poverty is reduced by some large amount, something like I've heard something like a third. I'm not exactly sure on the statistic on that. But what that illustrates is that the, the consequences of recent events has not simply been uh, for the Amazon and uh, for uh, Microsoft, but, but poor kids have also been the beneficiary of uh, some of the changes that have happened of recent Interesting way to look at it. I I think that perhaps the biggest benefit to poor children that will come out of this is that people will decide that the public school system doesn't have their best benefits at uh, at heart, and they uh, demand um, what is it funding that goes with the backpack or the child or whatever it is, uh, increasing the uh, opportunities for people who otherwise would be very limited in the schools they could access to access really at any school within uh, a certain distance from them. But uh, we'll certainly see how that plays out. Um, before we wrap up, I want to touch on back on that idea of of grassroots and you know and maybe think about how this particular moment that we're in either technology in terms of technology or culture um is is different and how that plays into um you know into meta dehumanization or other things have you you thought about the the role of uh you know of this particular uh configuration of social media and everything else uh, that it plays in, you know, in what you're observing? Well, I do worry about the, the impact that uh, social media has and, and particularly the way that it's uh, set up to uh, sort of follow on whatever is a popular line without necessarily vetting it for its uh, me- level of meaningfulness or, 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 or validity. And it's, it's difficult to, to vet it, but it, it does, pro- social media does provide sort of an echo chamber for all sorts of uh, really questionable concepts. Um, and I think we really need to figure out ways to help to provide more critical 
evaluation of some of these echo chambers. At the same time, there's a really important phenomena that um, also contributes to my optimism called the wisdom of the masses. Uh, Charles Darwin's cousin, Galton, was at a fair uh, some hundred and some odd years ago, and they were taking a, a contest to see who could guess the weight of the heifer. And he wasn't interested in the winner. He just got all the guesses and looked at the average uh, of all the guesses. And remarkably, the average guess was markedly more accurate than any single guess, so much better than the than the winning guess. There seems to be, if you just take the average of people's sentiments and uh, combine them together, there seems to be a sort of remarkable degree of wisdom that that can produce. And so to the degree that we can use the sort of democratization of the internet to allow uh, everybody to sort of input their uh, perspectives, uh, it seems quite plausible that that may lead to uh, some uh, remarkable uh, degree of wisdom. And so finding ways for a technology to really tap the wisdom of the masses and, and perhaps even to understand how it is that uh, I don't think there it has to do in part with regression to the mean and some of the other statistical issues that we mentioned before. But it is the wisdom of the masses is really a, r a remarkable phenomena. And I'm, I'm hopeful that the wisdom of the masses will become more evident as time goes on. Interesting. A little bit of a kind of a, a meta or meta analysis or uh, the question, I guess, is to, you know, to what extent you can average over these things and extract uh, something of value, certainly something to, to think about. Uh, Jonathan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Matt, it's been a real pleasure.